of you can uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Uh, I know uh, I was back last week, but I do want to take an opportunity just to thank all of you again, uh, and uh, in particular uh, the elders and deacons and staff uh, for holding it down all summer. You guys did great. Uh, And big shout out to Hunter for uh, bringing the word so much over the summer and also for just really thinking through and designing this sermon series that we're going through. Uh, We've been in the Psalms, or you all have been in the Psalms all summer, and it's really nice to jump back in right in the flow of things and not have to come up with what we're going to do. So that was really great. So thank you, Hunter, uh, for doing that. Um, That's right. Yeah, give him a hand. He did great. Um. All right, so uh, we are in the middle of this sermon series called Scale the Mountain, Worshiping God from the Songs of His People. And what we tried to do in designing this sermon series is really picking uh, psalms from each of the five books of the psalms to give you a good view of the entirety of the psalms. Uh, We're not hitting, obviously, all 150. That would take a little bit of time. But uh, we're going to hit a bunch of them to showcase uh, really what uh, God's Word has to offer in the psalms. And it's a space um, that we can really connect with the Lord. Uh, in the midst of this. And SCALE, as you know, is an acronym for uh, the things that we want to focus on in uh, the book of Psalms. Looking at story, at Christ, at uh, what it says about our affections, our emotions and will, our love of God and neighbor and exaltation, our worship of God. And so we're going to look at all of those things here this morning as we walk through this. Uh, Now, Psalm 73 is the beginning of book three of the Psalms. And so uh, a little bit of a transition uh, as this uh, collection of Psalms. Uh, It's a smaller collection of Psalms, but we'll be in here for at least a few weeks. So, now if you have been around uh, the church or the Christian world in the last few years, a word that has come up quite a bit is deconstruction. Oh, a lot of, wow, wow, quite the response there, that's not what I was expecting, all right, all right, all right, on my toes now, on my toes, so you might have a lot of feelings about deconstruction, clearly some people have feelings about deconstruction, so uh, now the word itself has uh, been used, maybe abused at times, like it's, it's, unclear depending upon what people mean by it. And so you have to really ask questions. But largely, there are two large uh, camps of responses to deconstruction. So uh, to deconstructing your faith, to uh, tearing apart maybe parts of your faith or all of your faith. One of these responses is to embrace it and to celebrate it and actually even encourage it. To encourage others to deconstruct as well. And not just deconstruct, but to completely destroy the faith. Not to rebuild it. Not to rebuild something in place of it. Just nothing. That the reality is that uh, for some folks, looking at this movement of deconstruction within the church is to say, we are finally realizing the ways in which the church has harmed people and we want it to go away. The other main camp maybe can be categorized by criticize. 
to look at stories of deconstruction and to get very critical about what has happened. Uh, That this is illegitimate, this is not something that you should be concerned about, not something that you should be uh, doing, not something that you should be hurt by, not any number of what you are saying, I'm going to criticize what you are saying. Maybe so much so to even blame individuals for the losing of their faith. And not just to blame them, but to allow them losing their faith to somehow discredit their story. In particular, if their story includes some level of church hurt or abuse, to discredit them and the way in which they view the world because they've lost their faith. I want to argue, maybe you already guessed it, that there's maybe a better way than both of those. A third way of sorts. What if there was a better way to deal with the reality of painful situations? What if we could simply and honestly tell our story and embrace the long defeat? Now, I'm going to flush out what that means, all right? But it comes from a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, Uh, In a quote, he said, uh, I am a Christian so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it contains some some samples or glimpses of final victory. Let me say that again. I'm a Christian so that I don't expect history to be anything but a long defeat though it contains some samples or glimpses of final victory. This morning I want to argue for us that in order for us to hold fast to God, while experiencing the very real temptations that come to abandon our faith, we must be honest about our own story and remember that we're part of a greater story. And that's a story of a long defeat. So we'll get there. We'll get there, okay? You just got to hold that in your head as we walk through this thing. Okay, we're going to look at Psalm 73 here. And uh, actually, this summer, one of the weeks that we were uh, visiting another church when we were in town, uh, we went to Deliverance, and uh, Pastor Andre, a great friend of City Hope, uh, preached on this uh, psalm. So I'm not stealing his, but you should go listen to it because it was really good. Uh, So, uh, but... Psalm 73, we're going to really just walk through this slowly, okay? We're just going to walk through this and allow the flow of the psalm to kind of dictate where we go this morning. Psalm of Asaph. So Asaph was a musician under King David. So a large portion of the book three of the psalms is Psalms of Asaph. So what we could have here in this psalm, it's not 100% clear, Uh, It's not attributed to David, but it could be David's experience that Asaph has written down for him in a psalm. Some commentators think that that's what's going on here. There's a lot here that fits with the life of David. Or it could be Asaph himself experiencing this. Uh, Whatever it is, it's very deeply personal in this psalm. So he says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping, and I was almost gone. 
He starts with this declaration of faith. Truly God is good to Israel. And this is a declaration of faith that Asaph is saying, I need you to know that I know that God is good. And it sets up the rest of the psalm because actually what causes Asaph's distress, where he almost lost his footing, is because he knows God is good. That's what's distressing him. He knows that God is good, and yet we're going to see that he experiences things that fly in the face of God's goodness. He's going to experience things that, which he is going to say, I don't know that I can believe what I just said, that God is good. I almost lost my footing. I'm very sorry. I'm going to try not to touch that. It's hard for me not to move. Uh, all right. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. This psalm, like many other psalms, is going to use a lot of exaggerated poetic language to describe for you exactly what you know is the feeling. Imagine being in a place where you have to have solid footing. Maybe you're climbing. I don't know anything about climbing, but solid footing is probably important, right? Or hiking or whatever you're doing, you need to have solid footing, But the psalmist says, my foot almost slipped out. I was nearly at the point of abandoning. And in this psalm, the context of this is obviously his faith and his spiritual well-being. Asaph is at the point of abandoning his faith completely. Why? Why would he do that? For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. He begins to envy the prosperity of the wicked. He begins to see that there are those in his life that he can observe who are wicked, who do not follow God or do not obey God. And yet their life seems so easy. It seems to go so well for them. Uh, Your translations may instead say uh, their uh, bodies are healthy and strong, may say something about fat. Uh, The reality is there's just uh, an abundance in the ancient world. Abundance was seen as health, right? Because there was uh, less abundance in the world. And so if you had a lot of abundance, uh, if you uh, were able to eat extravagantly, that was a sign of God's blessing upon you, right? Because you were being prosperous in that way. So healthy and strong is a good translation of that Hebrew way of thinking. It's every time I put my hand in my pocket, but it's not even over there. All right. I don't know what's happening there. So who are the proud and the wicked that he is envying here? I think there are a few options for us. One could be that they are the pagan nations surrounding Israel. Those who uh, do not know God, pagan nations surrounding Israel. Uh, Option two could be unfaithful members of the people of God. Those who are a part of Israel but are unfaithful to God. They are wicked. They are not following God rightly. Or it could be any and all who do not follow God truly, both inside and outside the household of faith. Now, I think 
that's obviously the easiest answer, right? Uh, the text doesn't give us clarity on it, but I think that's why we can at least say that it's not only option number one, that it's just those outside of Israel. It doesn't mention the nations, doesn't mention the Gentiles, doesn't mention the enemies of God's people, like many other Psalms do, as you guys have seen over the summer, there is a lot of emphasis on the nations throughout the Psalms. There's no specific mention of the nations here. So I know for me personally, when I, read, when I have read this psalm in the past, I automatically think of those outside of the church who don't know God. And yet, I do think there is a possibility here that it could be those inside the church who are also pursuing wickedness, who he has in mind here. Particularly because the wickedness that we're going to see described here in a moment is not that which generally is described among the nations surrounding Israel, but is generally what the prophets say to Israel. This is how you are being wicked. It's generally aligns with those things. So it could be more so along the lines of wickedness within the people of God particularly because of the way he starts the psalm. Remember, he says, Truly God is good to Israel. And then he clarifies that. He says, To those whose hearts are pure. Almost making a distinction between those within Israel who are following the Lord and those within Israel who are not. So there could be that distinction making uh, in this. As well as at the end, uh, it's going to speak of those who desert God. Could be referring to those who have slipped and fallen away, or could be referring to the wicked who have already deserted God. And remember, as you know, as you've been in the Psalms, there is this setup between the righteous and the wicked all throughout the Psalms. But there's no indication that it's simply the wicked are only those outside of Israel. In fact, so often it's those within God's people who are the identified as the wicked. I don't know what to do. Keep going. All right. So likely both are in view. Obviously, those outside of God's people are a problem for Israel when they see the goodness flourishing around them. And that's a problem for us as well when we see those who don't follow Christ flourishing in life and life looks really good for them. And yet, I do think the particular distress that the psalmist feels might be the greater scandal of the wicked within the church prospering even though they're pursuing wickedness. Now, why is that important? Well, I think certainly we can all relate to the psalmist here in envying the wicked. I know that I can We're going to be able to relate to him as we walk through this. But I think in particular, the most painful experiences that I've seen as a pastor in the lives of others, that David himself experienced, the most painful experiences that David had, the most painful experiences in my own life, is when the wickedness is not from those outside of the church, but from those inside the church. From those within the people of God. That actually is where David finds the most distress in his life. And so maybe 
this space where his feet are ready to slip is when he has experienced envying the wicked who are part of the people of God. When, the people, when wickedness among the people of God seems to get rewarded. Maybe you aren't there. Maybe that's not your experience. But maybe you do experience envy in looking at the success of those who don't follow God. You'll have lots of real application here. You know those moments where you think you wake up on Sunday morning and you envy just a little bit those who don't follow God because you're like, man, I could just sleep in. <laughs> or you go to buy something and you're like, man, my bank account would look a lot different if I didn't tithe. And I envy just the slightest bit those who don't pursue God. Well, what is it that he is distressed by? They seem to live such painless lives. When I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Now here's the thing. You don't get it right in this verse because the word prosper is kind of all over the scriptures here. But this word only shows up here in this psalm. But this word is the Hebrew word shalom. Which if you've been around City Hope, you know that word means something really powerful. This is not just prospering, getting wealth getting material things, shalom is peace and prosperity, life as it's supposed to be, thriving. When David looks, or Asaph looks, at the wicked, he says they are experiencing the peace and the wholeness that is the promise of God for his people. And they're wicked. How can that be true? Well, what does their wickedness look like? They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. Now, a lot of the Hebrew within this section of the psalm, starting in verse 5 all the way down, is a little bit hard to determine. Uh, so commentators differ on what exactly these word pictures mean. But it seems as though they are benefiting off of the oppression of, other, uh, oppression of others, and they are wearing it. They're wearing their pride like a jeweled necklace. Maybe actually wearing a jeweled necklace. Maybe just the word picture of it. They are clothed in the very oppression that they are giving out. They are flaunting before God. We are not taking care of our neighbors. We are taking advantage of our neighbors, and we are prospering. Look at how easy our life is. Look at how great our life is. Violence and oppression and unjust wealth are the things that define them. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. It's a great translation. I mean, it's just spot on. It's hard sometimes to get the language because we're not reading Hebrew and we're, we're not native Hebrew readers or speakers. And so to try and translate the way and the tone of this psalm. I mean, just imagine if you're having a conversation with someone who is distressed in envying the prosperity of the wicked. This is how they would speak. Those fat cats have everything they want. What's wrong with them? They scoff and they speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. 
They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. Now this is definitely the part that is the hardest in the Hebrew, and there is wide variety of uh, ways of understanding what exactly is being said here. But I think this is pretty good. They are boasting against this, and even the other people of God who are faithful are being dismayed and convinced to follow in their way. Yet another indication, I think, that the primary audience that he's looking at is the wicked within the people of God. They are leading people astray. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. That right there is the summary verse of Asaph's struggle. Look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Does the Lord even care? Does he even see? Does he know what's happening? Or is he asleep? How is this possible? Certainly, if you've experienced any level of hurt personally, particularly from those within the church or church leaders, especially from wickedness, it might seem that you could write these very words. Certainly, my own experiences within our presbytery over the last many years, as many of you know, relate to this. I say that not to make this about me, but to say I relate to exactly what's happening here And I know this experience. And so if you have been in this place where you have looked out and seen something wicked and you are frustrated and asking God, where are you? Know that I stand beside you and ask those same things. This is what Asaph is struggling with. We've all seen someone who you think has gotten a far better deal than they deserve. Because they're wicked. So what does Asaph do then to struggle through this? He says, did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. See, this is why I think this relates to David, because this sounds exactly like David all the time, right? When When he really feels it, he really feels it. I've got trouble all day long. Here is where his foot almost slips. He sees the wicked prospering. He sees their wickedness. He sees them prospering. And he says, they have a life of ease and I have a life of trouble. What do you get for all of your holiness? Just trouble. Loss of peace. Loss of hope. Loss of resources. Loss of community. Loss, loss, loss. As I look around, I just see my life is hard and there's a lot of painful things here. Why do I continue to pursue holiness for any reason? When clearly it doesn't do any good. Look at the wicked. Clearly it does no good for me to pursue holiness. Okay, I'm going to try something. I'm going to take this off and set it here. All right, let's try that. See if that works. It it restricts me a little bit, but here we go. Let's see. Okay. 
Why, why should I pursue holiness if it doesn't work? I'm not getting anything from it. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? This is the point in which you, if you are experiencing some level of distress or deconstruction, however you define that, and would love to hear more of your story in that, or you know someone who's in that spot, this is where we feel, where we ought to feel the most empathy. And maybe you've actually already answered that question and you want to walk away. Maybe this is where we need to feel the most empathy. This question comes from a place of distress and pain. Not one of defiance, but one of pain. But here's something, actually, that the psalmist and the wicked have in common. The psalmist here believes, or is functionally showing that he believes, the same thing that the wicked believes, which is that blessing, blessing in this life equals God's approval. That blessing equals God's approval. If things go well, God is pleased. Clearly, that's how the wicked are functioning, right? What does God care? Does he even see? It doesn't even matter. He doesn't even care. Look, blessing. I can do what I want. And the psalmist agrees. He's saying, I kept my heart pure and I got trash. That person was wicked and they got gold. How does this work out? See, one of the best tricks of Satan in this world is to convince people that prosperity, especially material prosperity, is a sign of God's approval. And that things not going well is a sign of God's disapproval. Not just material things, guys. This can happen in the church as well with church things. Church leaders must not be doing anything wicked because look at how many people are showing up and coming to know Jesus. Look at all the good blessings that are coming. Clearly, there's no wickedness here. Kingdom impact means that there's no wickedness. But what if that's just a trick of Satan? What if that narrative isn't actually true? And where the wicked says, well, God just doesn't see or care clearly and feels righteous. Feels like they are righteous. And the psalmist shows here, this is the point in which I feel like I'm going to fall. The psalmist is showing that they believe obedience is the way to earn God's favor. I've done right, and yet my circumstances haven't changed. But what if circumstances and results aren't the best way to know whether or not God approves of you? What if we're actually asking the wrong question? Does blessing and circumstance showcase that God approves of me? Disappointment. If you believe that circumstances are the way to God's approval, then disappointment, deconstruction, envy, that makes sense. 
abandoning purity and abandoning follow God's rules, because why follow them if my obedience didn't get me anything? Why would I do that? Now, a nagging thought that you might have in the midst of this, as we've been reading this, is, well, the psalmist says, I've kept my heart pure for nothing. And you might be thinking, what if I feel everything that the psalmist feels, but I didn't keep my heart pure? Like, what if I have been feeling all of these things, and yet I'm also not pure? I might as well go ahead and abandon everything then, because I got no hope. I got no hope. I might as well deconstruct all the way and leave the faith. Because it seems like the options are, I'm among the wicked, or I complain, though I'm righteous, but I can't do that because I'm not righteous. This, my friends, is why we need a true and better story. You see, the story of God's people is not of prosperity for the obedient righteous, but in a sense, a different kind of blessing for the unrighteous. Not the wicked that the psalmist refers to here in the psalm, the one who thinks they're righteous and walks around in pride, oppressing others, gaining unjust wealth, hating neighbor, and flaunting it. Not that wicked, but those who are unrighteous, who acknowledge their sin. The broken, the hurting, the weary, the honest, they though they are wicked, get the ultimate shalom, God himself. You see what this psalm, the distress that this psalm points us to is our need for Christ. Our need for a Savior who would come and die in our place, knowing our pain, our suffering, knowing our sinfulness, coming to be near to us, so that we can be made righteous, so that we can be made whole, so that we can get God himself. This is exactly where the psalmist goes. He says, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people, so I tried to understand why the wicked prosper. So he says, I, I didn't say this out loud, because if I did, people would have said, oh, that person, huh. That probably would have been criticizing that deconstructor right there, right? Because most of the time when we criticize what other people say out loud, it's because we didn't say it out loud. We said it in our head, right? Oftentimes that's what's going on, right? So the reality is that they are, they're like, I, I, did, I couldn't say that out loud. But I tried to understand it and I can't understand it. What a difficult task it is. Then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. I went into your sanctuary. I went to meet with you, God, to be with you. And that's where I understand what you're doing. Now we're going to get to where he goes in that. But the reality is, you might be thinking, okay, I get that the gospel is good, that Jesus came to die for me, a sinner, 
But that doesn't really help me struggle through this question. It just makes me feel it more. God is good. He's clearly good. But that doesn't make me figure this thing out. And I think part of it is because we have this view that when we believe in Jesus, we may not articulate this, but functionally we have this view, when we believe in Jesus, things automatically turn around and start to go well. That our life should start to look great. That we should experience good things. And if not good material things, because I'm suffering for the gospel and I'm not embracing those things, at least I should have good Spiritual blessings. I should feel so much peace when I read my Bible. I should feel so much comfort from the Lord. I shouldn't struggle with mental health issues. I shouldn't struggle with depression and anxiety. I shouldn't experience any of these things because I believe in Jesus. The reason I tell us about the Gospel is because the story that we must embrace is not one of quick blessing and victory. As I said earlier, the story we must embrace is the long defeat. I'll read Tolkien's quote again. He says, I am a Christian, so that I do not expect history to be anything but a long defeat, though it, com- though it contains some samples or glimpses of final victory. What does that mean? I think it means that we, people of God, lose a lot. Genesis to Revelation, if we read these stories, there's a lot of losing. There's a lot of the people of God not experiencing what they want to experience. Remember, we were just in the book of Revelation before I left, and we saw that victory in the book of Revelation is by overcoming. And that central verse that we saw that in, right, was loving our lives not unto death. Something like that. I I messed that up. Not loving our life so much that we're unwilling to die. That's the translation. Right? Victory by suffering. Victory by losing. Why do we expect anything more? Our king, our captain, our Lord is Jesus. What did he experience in this life? You see, the psalmist is so distressed because he's looking at this from the perspective of this is what God's goodness looks like. My circumstances being good. And yet Jesus and his life would show us that's not how we determine God's goodness. We follow a suffering Savior who loses a whole lot. So how can we do this? How can we embrace this idea of a long defeat? Life is a series of losses waiting for our final end. Well, God never tells us, God never tells us not to tell him that circumstances are bad. Actually, the psalmist here is showing us we're allowed to tell God, this stinks. I don't like this. We're allowed to express that because that's the reality that we experience. It's the reality that we experience. 
He never says that you can't be honest about your story. You can't get through life trying to avoid the very real pain that will come. And that's not where hope comes from in this psalm. Hope in this psalm doesn't come from avoiding the very real pain that we experience. The psalmist says, I I went to the sanctuary and I saw the destiny of the wicked. I saw their final end. Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, oh boy, knew that was going to happen. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant, I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. See, the reality is, the prosperity of the wicked is fleeting. And my envying of them was foolish. Why? Not because my circumstances were not bad. No, they were. And their circumstances really were good. Certainly. But theirs will not end well. There is a reality of very real judgment. There's a reality of very real judgment coming. That this is not the end, is not the current circumstances. So when Tolkien says that I expect history to be a long defeat with glimpses of that final victory, that final victory is when God's people are ushered into the new heavens and new earth and God rights all wrongs in this world. But that's a future day. It's not our present day. So where does hope come for in this present day? Hope comes in this present day by us recognizing this reality that he points to in this very psalm. I was foolish and ignorant. I was broken. I was sounding like a senseless animal to you. I didn't even understand my own thoughts. I was just so confused and distressed and broken. And what does he say? And you threw me out. You were frustrated with me. The psalmist has described all of these things and he shows, wait a second, I mean, the wicked are not going to prosper in the end. They don't get it in the end. And I still complained and I still did all this. And yet, what do I really see? God says, no, no, no. You still belong to me. You still belong to me. He realizes that he's not alone. That Jesus holds his right hand. You, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You see, we so often assume that God is in the blessing, in the blessed life, in the life that is good. We assume that that's where God is. What if the only way we can go forward is by recognizing the face of Jesus in our suffering and loss, 
in our present difficult circumstances? What if we realize our king, our captain, leads the charge in the long defeat, taking the blows with us and for us, holding our hand the entire way, gently saying, trust me, you belong to me. My very first trip on sabbatical, I went to Malibu. You know, rough life. But before I went, my host uh, told me that in Malibu, they call it May Gray. And I was like, okay, what's that? So he described it. He was like, it's gray like all day long. And I was like, well, I live in Muncie, so we know what gray is. You don't, you don't even know what gray is. We convince our children that the sky is actually blue because their experience tells them otherwise. It's gray, right? So I didn't quite believe him. But he was like, it's gray during the day, and then around 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, the sun comes out and it's beautiful. So I didn't quite believe him. I showed up in the evening, so I drove in along the Pacific Highway. It was amazing. Pacific Ocean's just like right there. You're like literally driving next to it. It's so cool. And there's like cliffs and so awesome. So I drove in. It was beautiful. The room I was staying in, I could see the ocean. It's gorgeous. Next morning I woke up. And it was not there. I could see like maybe 100 yards. It was just complete. Like it was like I was sitting in a cloud. All day long. I was like, this is insane. Like I went out and it was like, is it dark out? Like what is happening? Why are people just, you know, going about daily life? This is distressing. There's a beach out there. There is an ocean out there. I couldn't see it. Around 2 o'clock, I finally found a spot on campus. Uh, I was staying at Pepperdine University, and so right on campus there, I found this spot that I could sit and read. And you kind of had a whole view of everything around you. There's like mountains behind I don't know how anyone studies there. There's like mountains behind you and the ocean in front of you. And so I was just sitting there reading, 2 o'clock. It was dark and gray. And all of a sudden, like one little spot of blue came, but the brightest blue you could ever see. And over the course of an hour, I watched as the sun came out and burned all the gray away. All of it. I immediately found a way to get to the ocean. <laughs> and I sat and listened to the waves. And it was amazing and gorgeous. And I started my sabbatical that way. And it feels like the Lord was super kind in that. In showing me. Your circumstances may look gray and terrible, but the sun is really there. It's actually always there. Actually, behind this gray, it always looks gorgeous. It's always gorgeous. The sun is always there. The sky is always blue. But there is a veil between you and that, and you just can't see it yet. But trust me. Have faith in me. Trust me, and I will make it so. I will show you that beauty. And the result of knowing God's goodness in this way is worship. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. 
You guys may know this part of the psalm and may not know that it comes from this place of deep darkness. I almost quit my faith. And now I'm ending with whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. See, he bookends this psalm, truly God is good. Now I know his goodness. And I know his goodness not because I declared it as some confession of faith that I have to hold to, but because I've experienced it, not at the heights, but in the depths. Not at the best place in my life, but in the worst place of my life. By being honest about my story, I now know that you are what I desire more than anything else. Because I may not have prosperity. I may not have peace. I may not have all the good things that the wicked around me have, but I have something they don't have. I have Jesus. I have a God who will embrace my suffering with me who will come and be right beside me, who will come and be my all. So if we're to do this, we need to be honest about our story. We need to be honest about the parts of our story that are really hard to tell. The way in which we feel like we almost slipped or we want to slip or we want to run away, we just want to stop. We need to look to Christ, the glory of having a purity outside ourselves. We need to look to the glory of Jesus. We need to direct our affections, our will and our emotions, direct them to the right blessings, which is not all the blessings of this life, but the blessing of God's presence with us. God's presence near us. And then from that, we need to love, love God and love the broken, doubting, and confused. Those who experience these very same things, you know what? Rather than criticizing, we can come to them and say, I get it, because I feel the same thing. But come with me and meet Jesus. Let's come talk about Jesus. Because there's someone so much better than the wicked who have hurt you. And his name is Jesus. And then we can exalt him in raw, honest worship. There's something far better about the end of this psalm when we descend into the depth and find out that that's already where Jesus was. Right? We get to that place where we feel like we're going to slip and we see, wait, Jesus, what are you doing here? I'm with you, holding your right hand, always with you. We're going to finish this by reciting the end of this psalm, just as we've done throughout this sermon series. We're going to recite this psalm together, really from the depth of where we are, 
So I don't know where you are. I don't know all your story. But if you want to talk about any of that, please know I am available to talk and to hear and just to listen to all the things that you've experienced and the pain that you have endured and where you are in that story. But let's read, starting in verse 25, let's read this together. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. Those who desert Him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the Sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Let's pray together. Lord God, we come to you now honestly confessing that we feel often that we're about ready to slip. Lord, we want to cling tightly to you. We want to cling to you and to your glory. God, would you help this psalm be the cry of our heart that we desire you more than anything on earth because you are near to us. Lord Jesus, be our shelter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.